Hello everyone, it's uh, Dave Thompson from uh, CCG here, and welcome to this super senile special edition of Under the Surface. Um, we were originally going to call this our Christmas episode. Uh, in honor of Chris and the fact that it was the holidays. But then um, we realized that wasn't particularly inclusive. So the, welcome to our holiday episode. Welcome. You're listening to Under the Surface, a podcast where we have in-depth discussions on computer-aided techniques in drug discovery. Um, so I'm actually commandeering the episode, uh, at least the introduction, and I have a little bit of a story to tell. So the MCM-70 was a pioneering microcomputer. It was one of the first in the world. It was the second to be shipped in completed form and the first ever portable computer. According to the IEEE Annals of Computer History, the MCM-70 is the earliest commercial non-kit personal computer. So when was it built? 1973, right? That's two and three years before the founding of Microsoft and Apple respectively. Now, where do you think it was built? California? Boston? New York? Nope, it was the sleepy suburbs of Toronto in Ontario, Canada. Now, as Shania Twain, Ryan Reynolds, and my Canadian colleagues, who am I missing? I need some famous Canadians. Mike Myers. Mike Myers. Dan Aykroyd. Dan Aykroyd. Anna knows no famous Canadians. Uh, all of those folks will tell you that cool things happen in Canada and in a very Canadian way, right? They just let it fly under the radar, muttering, oh, well, that's just how it goes, eh? But no more, dear listener, the worm has turned. I have commandeered this episode of Under the Surface because next year, 2024, sees the 30th anniversary of the founding of CCG. And, and I think that's a big deal, right? And I refuse to let my Canadian colleagues sit back and not indulge in a bit of self-congratulation on the thing that they have built and that they have cultivated over all of these years. I mean, come on, how cold does it have to be to make a small group of people decide to sit indoors and build a chemically aware programming language from scratch? And then to wrap a GUI around it that allows molecular modeling at all scales, right? Not just small molecules, protein ligand complexes, all the way through to large macromolecular assemblies of biologics, and then to continue active development, improvement, and ongoing research for three decades. Now, make no bones, that's the salesiest thing that has ever been said on this yet-to-win-an-award-winning show, and I'm sure it's making my colleagues a little nervous, but never fear, this isn't going to be a Mo love fest. Instead, today, I want to try and understand how it all happened and to get a feel for the motivation, the computational chemistry scene at the time, and the early years. And so to do this, I'm going to be talking to two of my colleagues. One we've heard from a lot, my under-the-surface co-host, Chris Williams. Hello, Chris. Nice to be here, Dave. And the other we've not heard from at all, but she's no less instrumental to all things CCG, both now and forever, our research group leader, Anna Lynn. Thank you so much for joining us, Anna. Thanks, Dave, for having me. So, Anna, Chris, thank you for indulging me and being here today in a, 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 like a tropical he head office where it's about 150 degrees Celsius. Um, but before I get cracking, uh, how are you both? I'm doing good. All right, thanks. Okay, Anna is for one thrilled to be here. You can literally see the beads of sweat as she's not sure what, what's going to happen or how this is going to go. So I've got a bunch of general questions for you. Um, perhaps, Anna, we'll start with you. What's your background? 
Tell us a little bit about yourself. My background is that I was actually born in West Germany, a com- country that no longer exists. West Germany in Europe? Indeed. None other. And, uh, but I grew up in Canada. So I am truly a Canadian and I spent most of my life here in Montreal. My uh, educational background is as an electrical engineer. I graduated from McGill University. I did my master's there as well. And I worked for a couple of years at a Canadian company called Matrox uh, Electronics, where I worked in the area of computer vision. And then I ended up here at CCG and I've been here forever. So when you say 30 years, <laughs> not quite 30 years for me, but getting on, getting on. Getting on for 30 years. Yeah. So when so, you said the super senile, I, I was, it made me raise my eyebrows a little, Dave. Well, it was frankly. about myself and not oh, you. Oh, yes. Um, okay. Joanna referred okay. to me as super senile in the first <laughs> episode. And now she just, took, that's how she introduces me at parties and at conferences and things. Okay. Um, because customer you know, has a question. I'd like to invite my super senior colleague to come over. I mean, super senior. I mean, y- Dave. Yes, but since I, you see, the fact is, Chris yeah. and I are both older than you, and it just feels a little bit, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Edgy. About that. Are you at all concerned that when I asked you for some famous Canadians, you couldn't list any? Well, there was a senior moment indeed. Oh, <laughs> I just thought the blinding headlights of the podcast caught you, uh, and you were like, I'm going to be been- famous. I don't know what to answer. Uh, Happens all the time. Okay, fair enough. Um, Chris, we we obviously, uh, you and I have, I've had the privilege of being your co-host for the last, I mean, how many episodes have we done now? Five, six? Let's round it up. 25. There we go. Um, uh, but but what about your background? Uh, Tell so, us about your background. Um, I'm born and raised in Montreal. I got my bachelor's from Concordia. And there I was actually doing chemical engineering. So I worked in an explosives plant for a long time. And then that got a bit uh, too uh, on the edge. So I went back and did my PhD in computational chemistry at McGill. And that's when I bumped into the the people that made up CCG. It was a chance encounter at the university uh, graduate student bar. Um, and I was a consultant for CCG in 1993-94, then went back to finish my PhD, and then came back in 1998 full-time employee. All right. So I was going to ask if you could give us a rough timeline, but you gave us an exact timeline, so that's great, right? So it's 93-94. I think I started in 95. Yeah. 95. When I first, when I first showed up, you weren't here. Um, there was only Paul, Martin, Ken, Three were still here. Yeah. And Peter, Peter. Chu mm-hmm. and and Paul Labute's brother. Danny. Danny. Mm-hmm. Danny Labute. Danny. That's a great name, by the way. Danny Labute. Uh, okay. And then you had a chance meeting at, and this shocks me, a bar um, where you ran. And did you know these people before? Well, actually, the meeting wasn't between me and the people at CCG. It was between a coworker in my lab. So uh-huh. I was doing my PhD and, and she was doing density functional calculations and she's frequented the uh, student bar uh-huh. and then she heard about the CCG people I guess met them through Peter Chu actually who was a mathematician who frequented lots of bars <laughs> and uh, she said hey you might want to go check out these guys they're interested in molecular modeling and that's what I was interested in at the time and then we hit it off I guess. So you had a, a density functional theorist a mathematician and a chemist in a bar right that's uh, so firstly Where's the punchline? Yeah, where, where's the punchline? <laughs> there was um, none. It's not a very funny group. So so those group of people decided with intent to start a thing? Um, no, I think the, the, the density functional person wasn't interested in getting involved with CCG. No. She was doing more uh, muffin tin orbital calculations yeah, on yeah. metal surfaces. I was interested in organic chemistry and... Uh, 
calculating reaction mechanisms. So small molecules and molecular mechanics appeal to me. Okay. Um, and that's the first time I think that anyone said the phrase muffin tin on the podcast. So that's good. And uh, I think no, mu- not muffin top, muffin <laughs> tin over there. Chris, I don't need comments about my physique. Okay, I just don't. That's not helpful. It doesn't make me feel you, good about like myself. You don't have a muffin top, top as much as you would like to. You don't. <laughs> Anna, you are asking what what kind of stuff gets cut out? Perfect example, right there. Right. Uh, all right. Um, before we jump into a little bit more about the background, like, what did you think you'd be when you grew up? Like, what was? Well, I come from a. a, a Asian background. So my mom was a teacher and my, my <laughs> I don't understand. That was that a plan. But, you know. <laughs> my dad was a mechanical engineer and he taught at Concordia. So I always knew it was going to be something scientific and technical. He was a professor of mechanical engineering and heat transfer and thermodynamics at Concordia. Okay. I was always in awe of my mechanical engineering, like co-students they seem to have extremely hard problem sets and it was an incredibly intense environment. Well, my daughter is uh, at second, in second year mechanical engineering at McGill. Yeah. yeah. But she's the one that does all the robot competitions, right? Um, Baja. Baja, which is dune buggy building. Oh, dune buggy. I knew, yeah, okay. Right. Yeah. The sailor. Yes, yes. yes okay. I have read her blog, not in a creepy <laughs> way. Um, Chris, what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, I always wanted to be a scientist. Did you? Right? Really? Yeah, I was. I like. I like dinosaurs. I was a typical geeky kid. I uh-huh. like dinosaurs. I like model rockets. I like model airplanes. Yeah. Um, I always like chemistry. Yeah. Chemistry, I, I've liked a lot. I, I wanted to actually be a teacher. I really wanted a job in a college. You know, get the summers off, yeah, relax. Yeah. I actually worked in a college for Paul LeBute's mother, right. our, our founder yeah, yeah, CEO. Yeah. His mother is the chair of a science department at a local college, and I was working for her. Yeah. And Paul at the same time at one point. So I was working for CCG, Paul's my boss, and I was working for Paul's mother simultaneously. So uh, that was... Yes, and these connections are very interesting because um, we mentioned Peter. And by some very odd coincidence, I actually knew Peter's family when I was a child. And we in, lived in Canada? or In, in Canada. In, yeah. We lived close to each other in Westmount. Yeah. And we used to visit each other and... So I, I actually knew Peter as a child, and then we completely lost touch. And all of a sudden, mm. when I came to CCG, hey, there's Peter. There's Peter. Mm. And how did and how did Peter know uh, some of the other founders, right? I so I, so I'm, I'm considering the founders, right, not being there in the bar. I'm considering the founders uh, Peter. No? Like, are there yeah, formal well, founders? Like, who are the formal founders? It'll be Paul and Martin. Paul and Martin are I the think. formal founders. Okay. And, and the two investors, George and Joe. George and Joe. Okay. And so Peter was involved with Paul and Martin and he was no, and no. The and yeah, see, and Peter, the bar. Peter, Peter went would have, to the bar. Peter would have been the bar. Martin sent Heavy, not so much. Not so much. So Martin came into this because he knew Danny. And he knew Danny. Paul's brother. Paul's brother. Because um, they ended up working on the, uh, for the same person. Uh, I believe it was a professor. And then it was through Danny that Martin knew Paul, and mm. then, yes, they all got together. So one of the places we go a lot, right, because there are lots of pharmaceutical companies there and lots of biotechnology companies there, and we have lots of customers there, is is Boston and the Cambridge area in Massachusetts, right? And I don't know, I know, I'm sure you've been on the MIT campus. I don't uh, know if yeah, you've ever been times. to the MIT yeah. campus, Anna. 
So that's a place that sort of buzzes with entrepreneurial energy. Like there's people mm. who are taking courses and things and they see business opportunities that they then want to turn into companies. Is that true at somewhere like McGill? And and was that true 30 years ago? I don't I'd say think no 30. and no. Okay. So I that's- mean, that, we, it's, they do have like an office of technology yeah, at yeah, McGill that most yeah. universities do, um, but there isn't the same sort of entrepreneurial spirit, I yeah, guess, yeah. In, in academia as much. And I mean, CCG didn't really come out of the university. No. Right? It was people who... Um, Just had, like loosely affiliated or loosely affiliated. affiliated with the university, knew each other. We had, we had, to, we have universi- no? we had university degrees. Yeah, okay. <laughs> that's, that's about how much we're affiliated with McGill or we Concordia. Um, and it was just a, an idea of starting a, co- a company. There's lots of software companies in Montreal, yeah. right? And, you know, the Mo software in the SVL language could have also been applied to mathematics or applied to other types of analytics. But I just want to I just want right. to pause there, right? Because I am adamant that next year is going to be a thing that I encourage us to celebrate because I think it's I think it's so amazingly special the thing that you built and curated and at that time 30 years ago it must have been so unusual pretty much anywhere to turn you know university was often felt of a thing that you did to go into a career mm-hmm. or it was a thing you did to, and that career could be I guess professional or it could be academic but it but there was a sort of a, a purity to it and thinking that you could turn it into a thing that would make money feels maybe not necessarily in the university well, it's, spirit. It's, it's right? not. It's, 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 the idea is different. I mean, yeah. we were with computational chemistry code in the beginning it was all freeware, it was all put on, you know, the yeah. quantum exchange. Um, there was a lot of code around from different academic groups. So the idea of, of putting together a um, sort of a professional platform, there was already at the time there was Tripos, yeah. there was MSI, but the idea with CCG was to have a, platform built on an embedded programming language, which yeah. is common in other fields. CAD has this, yeah. but it wasn't common in, in computational chemistry. So that was the idea was to build this system with the computer expertise of the founders right. and, you know, attack this, you know, at the time kind of new field of computational chemistry where people were applying, you know, uh, you know techniques across disciplines, you know, quantum chemistry and some modeling and some protein alignment and, yeah. In, in the context of drug discovery. All right. Yeah, the approach was um, novel for the field. I think at the time, uh, most of these other professional, the commercial software were actually a kind of a hodgepodge collection of, of code that mostly came out of academia. Mm-hmm. And the idea for a CCD, well, the company that it was back then, was to build it um, from a very much a computer science, a real software engineering point of view, rather than purely science. A lot of the other code was science driven. It was research driven. And this was really from the bottom up. So it was very much focused on optimizing calculations, on building, it was, it's called molecular operating environment because it was really meant as a kind of a low operating system in which to to build applications. So therefore, it had the the base platform. It had the graphics and Windows Toolkit. It has the programming language, and then from there you could build everything. So Mo actually stands for something. <laughs> Indeed. Yep. Did you know that? <laughs> wow! Everyone knew that but me. I'm kidding, I did. Um, <laughs> all right. So, uh, Chris, your earliest memory of the thing that became CCG was running into this chap, Peter, in the bar. 
And oh no, the well, yeah, the density functional person introducing you to the people that yeah, were doing the yeah. thing. Anna, what about you? What was your earliest memory? I came to CCG via Martin, uh-huh. and I came in actually as a technical writer. Uh huh. So I wrote the first manuals, which were actually hard copy. They were little spiral bound tomes. In LaTeX. In LaTeX, yes. <laughs> I am going to tell you something that may get me in trouble. I stole one. <gasps> no. I did. I stole one. Well, it's probably good because the rest of them just went to the shredder. Okay, good. We we still have a few copies of some. Old yeah, ones. you got them. So there was somewhere. there was one in a pile a couple of Christmases back, and I came and visited, and it had been there a couple of times, and I was like, no one cares about this, but I'm like, this could be important historically. 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 Mm-hmm. So I actually did steal it. So it could be worth money in three thousand years. That and the laptop that was in Liz's office, but I also figured that was well. That's probably a little more valuable. But, uh, okay. Oh, well, Liz will hear this, so she can talk to me about it. All right. So, what were your f- so your first role at CCG then was as a technical writer? Mm-hmm. And how long were you a technical? Are you still a technical writer? I still do technical yeah, writing. Indeed, it's always been an ongoing uh, project. But in the end, all of R and D does technical writing. Right. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, how long were you a technical writer for? You know, purely a technical writer, a year or so, and then I started programming after okay. that. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then, Chris, your first role? I was the first support scientist. Actually, I think the second support scientist. Second. You had hired um, a gentleman before me, um, young guy. He, um, I forget his name. He was one of my students. Anyway, so I was, I was the first support scientist that, you know, answered tickets and went on the road. So when I started, uh, I just answered emails. We had, like, maybe 10 clients, tops. And my first role was to... Test the software. Um, I start writing a bit of wrote uh, the carbohydrate builder when I started, and then uh, just you know went on the road, started meeting people, getting to know the field, which I knew nothing about, mm-hmm. and uh, learned over the years. Wait, so, t- so technical writing feels like I, I understand what that is, right? I, I mean, I need. I don't just give you the. I, I'll sometimes joke to customers that when they engage in a license with us, we don't just give them two thumbs up and take a check. We engage in a relationship with them, and part of that is there's full documentation, there's access to support, etc. So that feels like you knew what you were getting into, right? I, you, I understand the roles of of documenting the software and clearly describing the things it can do. But on the support side of things, I imagine was that a bit more? Did, I hadn't you know, really did, a clue. Yeah, and I'm I'm guessing especially around that time, right? So you got you you've already mentioned some of the other earlier vendors, Tripos and MSI and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Like, were support science, were application scientists a group yet? Um, not that I knew of. I remember mm-hmm. going to a conference a few years before um, joining CCG, and I went to the vendors uh, hall, and I saw a couple of gentlemen selling uh, Hypercam. Nice. And they were dressed in suits and things like that. And I thought to myself, I'd never want to be those guys. Nice. So it turns out I became one of those guys. And you just don't uh, wear a suit. I just don't wear a suit, yeah. right? So, uh, yeah. So at the beginning, I, did, I didn't want to travel and I didn't want to program. So that's the things I did the most of right. in the end of the day. Um, but, yeah, in the beginning, was well, I wasn't really too sure what to expect, right? But as, you know, you take each ticket at a time, you talk to each client. And at the beginning, CCG was very... Um, uh, serious about support because we did a survey. The Just com- to be clear, we still are. We still are. Very. Well, but they, uh, they, we, <laughs> we had one of our first marketing people was quite brilliant. He did a survey of people in computational chemistry, what they did not like about their software. Uh-huh. And the things they didn't like was the um, modules, all the different modules. So that's why unified system. Yeah. They didn't like the, um, you know, 
non-uniform pricing. Different people would play different amounts depending on, you know, their perceived wealth or whatever. And the third thing was just complete lack of support because there were tended to be academic codes that were bought up. Right. So we tried to give, you know, one, one system, no modules, um, support and same price for all. And that was the, uh, that was kind of where it started. And, and did these, so this is, I think still very much true now. Yeah. Right. And so did this just, it sounds like there was some intention in finding out about them well, it sounds like it was very intentional. That was very intentional. Very intentional. I mean, that that's that was really the 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 whole thing was that you know, complaints were like, yes, you buy software from vendor X. Yeah. Their homology modeling package was homology modeler. Yeah. But that homology model doesn't go into their Docker. Yeah. Yeah. All this, all these kinds of little headaches that you know, seem trivial, you know, from a from a grand scientific perspective, but on a day to day basis, when you've got to take a file and, you know, parse through it and remove all the uh, spaces in the second column before this other thing can read it, and even then, cross your fingers. These are just kind of annoying things that, you know, in that in professional software is uh, taken care of more, mm. right? That's one of the, one of the things I learned, you know, being a little bit of a scientific programmer when I came here is that there's a scientific aspect of the programming. Then there's a part of the programming that makes it user friendly, which in a lot of cases is a lot more code. Yeah, <laughs> and and you don't think of this when you're in academia. You give people this this you know this big huge input file with a hundred different keywords, and they got to remember it. And there's a thousand ways to screw this up. You know, professional software typically doesn't work that way because you're work, trying to work with people who are trying to get stuff done. Yeah. So they you know a click of a button or something they do complex make it very easy because if you don't they're going to go on to some other software yeah, if they yeah. don't really have the time to you know deal with the interface yeah yeah i totally agree with that so hand in it goes hand in hand with our um emphasis on support of our customers is that usability is a huge part of our development when people come in and interview for R&D, we, we check to see if they're interested in ui design because a lot of people don't realize how much of UI is part of the project. In fact, when when our developers develop, you know, it's all working on the back end. The, mm-hmm. the functionality is all there, and then, and then they realize that they still have half the project left, which is building the UI. I find sometimes building the UI helps me understand how the application should behave. Like it, it helps me clarify where the options should be, what are the scopes of the options. You know, because you have a you have a command with a hundred options, it's easy to get lost in the options. But the the in a sense. The UI is just, they're so easy to develop in SVL. The, the GUI is easier to, typically easier to write than the documentation, mm-hmm. right? And it's usually a great summary and, and you know, what can be used with what. It's, it's, for me, it actually helps me design how an application should work by, because it's the, the interface with the user, right? I just usually code up a big button that says go. That's typically what I do. Right? Yeah, just go. <laughs> with, with, you know, people don't want to read a hundred instructions. They open up this thing, press button, get result thing is there are the people who like the go button the do it button yeah and or we call it doit and then Wait, there is that, are is people, that a technical r&d it, it is it is that's the technical pronunciation of do it is Please doit. Again. Doit. doit doit yes exactly good good you can doit. you can join r&d anytime now you're all set thanks yeah um, so but well, i said that a bit too quickly didn't i oh okay and i thank you i'll think about that i'll let you know after dinner <laughs> But in addition to the doit, there are always people Mm. who want all the parameters too. So that you have to find the happy balance. Mm. Um, Did you decide you wanted to move away from technical writing? At what point were you like, I'm done writing manuals? I want to, or was it it natural? And and roughly how many people were there in 95? It sounded like you had some marketing people as well. We were like one, two, three, four, five, six, maybe 10. 
if if even that yeah, many. But I'm, I'm yeah, I'm including um, Paul's wife was working there. At the she top. was an R&D. Yeah, she was yeah. an R&D, Paula. And um, we had a couple had marketing sale. people. Mm-hmm. And um, then we had a, 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 the, the office manager. Yeah, oh, so maybe, yes, that's right. Yeah, maybe t- 10 talks right. in, 10 in talks. the beginning. Right. And around 10. this time, you, you said you were supporting about 10 customers? Yeah, we had a customer list of about 10, 10, 10 people. 10 mm-hmm. people, early days. And how, how, did, how did that customer base... How did that begin, right? You're a, you're a company from the great north. Well, they, they literally, in those days when we built the software, it was running on Sun Microsystems machines. So they are, these are these enormous CRT. And, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and silicon graphics. And silicon and graphics. graphics, right. So, you know, back breaking. And they loaded <clears> a couple of Suns in the back of a station wagon. They drove it to the States and they literally went door to door. Selling, you know, vacuum salesman. Well, it's uh, See, that was that was selling. that was before my time because Wait, I went door to door with the sun. Um, that was Paul and and I think Martin, Bill Hayden and I Martin. Think, I think Paul and Martin. Wait, yeah. so um, maybe my mind has just been blown. So they 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 have a software. It compiles and runs on these machines. They put the the machines that the software is on in the back of their cars mm. and they drive south mm-hmm. and to was demo there, it to demo it but but what but like could you did they have you know people that they planned on seeing or did they have people that were interested i think there was a list of there people a, that mm, they yeah, wanted yeah. to hit there was yeah. a list of people that they wanted to go to yeah. but did those people want them to come i don't know don't i don't know. remember i'm gonna ask this question all right yeah, i'm gonna yeah. ask the, figure uh, out. Th- um i'm pretty sure i mean like we there was the 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 early adopters were interested in the the operating system, interested in the language. Yeah. They tended to be people who were doing more experimental type stuff. So it was kind of hard to get into established markets. MSI was around, Tripos was around. Yeah. Um, so we did. It was hard to make a name for ourselves in the beginning because we didn't come out of a big known academic group. Yeah. So our first early adopters were people who liked the the tinkering aspect. They liked the the SVL and they liked the support aspect. Yeah. Um, too. So we did have a list of people that we wanted to go see, um, and but the, our competitors had the same problem too. Our things were on the Silicon Graphics. Yeah. So back in those days, yeah, people used to show up in the car, haul this big 50, 60 pound computer out, be it an SGI or a Sun, and wheel it into the basement of the of the the company you were demoing to, and fire it up and hope for the best. You know, and in, in, so in thirty years, not much has actually changed, right? The first say 15 minutes of that would be setting up the machine. Well, actually, a lot of things have changed. It's on a laptop that I can bring with me, right? Well, he, Second thing he is jumped proje- before I got to the punchline, yeah, but, right? But, the pro- first 15 minutes of any given meeting at any given company yeah. these days is trying to connect via Zoom or Teams well, or, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like the connection part's the thing that well, has but you And you probably forget connecting to projectors has now become easy, mm. but it used to be, you know, you used to have to like, do I, you know, Turn on the computer and then turn on the projector, or turn on the projector and yeah. then reboot the computer, yeah, exactly. and then I un- 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 connect the connection two or three times, Up, and down, then left, right, a chant. Yeah, there was, it was. Yeah. And the support of those projectors was also uh, very important. We we were limited in the the aspect ratio, and <laughs> we had to support a certain low resolution yeah. in the interface. Yeah, that's for the yeah. longest time. Crazy, crazy. All right, so then when did you transition onto? The R and onto the like moving away from the technical. I think it, it just naturally progressed. At a certain point, the manuals were written. Yeah, yeah. And so I just moved on. Yeah. And did you? So you said you had roles before CCG, following your electrical engineering training. Yeah. Did you, it was, did you write? Did you code before, or was that? I was uh, 
at a different company. Yeah, yeah for sure. But did yes. you write code for that company? Yes, yes. You did. Yes. Okay. So coding was not software. a thing that you Indeed. But okay, perfect. Indeed. Okay. Yes. Good. Um all right. Uh so 30 years ago, uh did you ever think it wouldn't work? Like did you ever think that CCG as a thing would cease to like It never occurred to me. No, I never occurred. I, you know, I, we had a, an employee that started here. I remember Dimitri. Dimitri, uh, so he started, and he was a, um, a Russian guy who did his PhD at Rutgers, and he moved up here and was a sports scientist for a while. And you know, he was a young guy and, and you know interested in his career prospects. And, and I, my, I told him at the time, I said, "Look, CCG has got a good at least twenty twenty five years." <laughs> that was that was my prediction. I think you know the, the technology was sort of run its course in about twenty five years, and I was doing it you know based on histories of other software companies. So mm -hmm. I'm surprised that actually, to a certain extent, lasted this long. Mm -hmm. um, but I was never, I never had a feeling that we were we were doing something that was questionable and on shaky ground. Interesting. Right? So we Good. always had something to offer, something that might not have been what the client wanted, you know, the Docker that ends all Dockers or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but we'd always have something that was useful. We'd mm -hmm. always have a, you know, we'd always have some sort of application that did something that was demonstrably useful. Mm -hmm. That we've we sold some, you know, pie in the sky stuff too, you know, as a lot of computational chemistry is, you know, we hope for the best. But even just some of the simple tools of day-to-day -day data manipulation and and well-established stuff, you know, we have enough of a client base that gets enough value out of that to justify the software purchase. Mm -hmm. And that's really what makes it kind of viable. It's like, you, you, you don't feel like you're ripping people off. You really feel you're helping people and you can and you tell that because they say, yeah, this really worked and really helped me out, mm. you know? So I always had the feeling that, you know, we're not selling someone something and then a year, year later they get rid of it because it's not of any use. Yeah. Well, also that um, when we developed our projects, they were always really solidly grounded in theory. There was never any magic or hand wavy stuff. It was Do you all... mean physics based, Anna? Right. Is it a physics based platform? Yes. Yeah, I thought so. so too. Well, <laughs> and, and, but I'll, 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 I'll contrast that in some ways like that, that we haven't always pushed towards one method over the other hmm. and we have responded to what clients want. So do we, we have methods based in, in different types of theories, right? Um, but because we interact with our clients quite a bit with this at support level, we understand the kind of applications they want. And a lot of times they've driven our development um, in the case of the requests. So, so in the case of biologics, it's a new field we went into. Mm. We had some offerings uh, in terms of applications, but then clients would ask for other things and we'd eventually develop those applications in response to papers they'd read or new techniques that were coming out. Um, and these are things that they, they'd found useful, you know, as, yeah. as computational things to, to benefit their, their bench work. Mm -hmm. So that's part, I think that's helped us too, is that we're not always trying to, you know, fit a square peg in a round hole. We've got our, our applications, right? And, but if our applications aren't what the person wants, we can modify our applications or even on the fly, develop some new prototypes to go see, is this going to do anything? Is this way of analyzing data going to get any signal? At least we can, Put a prototype together, see if it works, and if it does, we build on it. And that's yeah, been that's our, been the advantage of yeah. having SVL and uh, chemistry-aware language yeah. plus the widget toolkit and everything available. Is the is the prototyping? You can you can you know before you waste a lot of time developing a new application, you can give a little prototype. Is this going to work? Before you waste a lot of time on it. That was exactly my lived experience as a customer. So yeah, and I, we still do this to the day. That's what's that's what's nice about interacting with the customers. In this intimate support levels, they actually tell us the kind of things they want, the new science they're interested in, yep. and we can, you know, program things for them. 
Um, w when you think back on the the field, like what were the hot spots in chemistry that you were, or computational chemistry that you were trying to itch at the time? So thirty years ago, do you remember? Oh yeah, thirty years thirty years ago when I first started working here, it was uh, QSAR was huge, right? Right. And CombiChem was huge. The whole idea was you'd have these robots to make all these different oh, yeah, yeah. libraries. Then you have the, Q, the QSAR models to go and filter this stuff. And this is going to be the virtual high-throughout screening um, paradigm, right? Oh, my goodness. So we're, we're, well, that's what we're doing now, isn't it? Yes, yes. yes okay, yes, good. All right, yes. good. So uh, it's, it, it, uh, there's definitely cycles in this industry where you, you've, you've seen the same thing come over and over again in some ways. Yeah. It's like fashion. It Every is. 20 years... You know, the bell bottoms. Bell bottoms come yeah. back. Mm -hmm. You say that, though. When was the last time we saw someone wearing bell Actually, my daughter was wearing my bell bottoms. My daughter yeah, wears yeah, 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 yeah. Fair yeah. play, fair play. Um, did you think you would be doing this in 30 years' time, right? If you think back on younger you, were you like, yep, that's my goal? <laughs> it was never a, a conscious goal. Yeah. But as long as the work was stimulating yeah. and the environment was fun and the people I worked with I liked... There was no reason not to keep going, and in fact, uh, it's been wonderful working here. You know, I did when I was doing was doing my uh, graduate degree. I found myself surrounded by super smart, fun, interesting people. I thought, "Wow, this is I'm never going to find this again." But indeed, I found it at CCG, and it's been. I thought fantastic. you were going to say, and "I never did." <laughs> oh, Dave! <laughs> I never did, and I'm still looking. Yeah. So, if anyone knows that, uh, <laughs> um, any predictions for the for the next thirty years, other than we won't be here? Well, speak for yourself. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah, thirty years. Oh, I might be able to make it. I'll be pushing ninety, but I won't. Uh, I don't think I'll be doing this. But uh, I don't know. I think uh, there's. I think there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of hope for uh, um, this this field to keep growing, for the company to keep growing. We've got a new crop of employees, and the, even just the field itself. Uh, you know, when I go to meetings, I see a new uh, generation of scientists eager to learn about this and interested in it. And the fact that we're still the software's still relevant, still runs on computers. We don't have some old computer that, um, and it's, it's evolving. I think there's a, a lot of room to keep growing. I wouldn't have predicted it would have gone this far. Computational chemistry as a field. No, no, the, the most software. Oh, the most software. Most software. I think computational chemistry as a field is going to be here to stay, and we're going to have these different cycles of, you know, the, the the application of the month. Like we had QSAR, we had docking, we had, you know, water analysis. We've had all these different exciting moments, you know, um, and where everyone is focused on something different. Yeah. And that's just our, us as a field maturing and learning. That's why we get excited about these new things, AI being a current new advancement, which has some advantages and some potential, but you know, in some areas may disappoint, just like all of our applications. Uh, so I think there's, I mean, I think computers and drug discovery are kind of here. And, you know, we'll always be able to offer something to the field because we do have a platform which can be flexible. Yeah, I agree. I think there will always be a role for computational chemistry in the drug discovery field. I find that, um, the field evolves hand in hand with both the technology in the wet lab mm -hmm. as well as the technological advances in computers. So mm -hmm. the faster computers, the faster storage, they all make possible the bigger computations. And at the same time, the types of technology you find in the in the actual field, in the labs, also drives what the customer, the clients are interested in, and it opens up yeah. new areas of possibility. So 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. Did, did either of you know much, anything about like the process of drug discovery prior to taking this no. role? Nothing at all. Not, not pharmaceutical drug discovery. <laughs> It's an important clarification for Chris's parole. Is it, is it, is it, is it? <laughs> so there's, there's different ways to acquire knowledge in this. this universe. I thought he was going to say something else. I'm like we have to stop recording. We'll talk. We'll talk about the reindeer urine later. Yes. yes, yes. The, the empirical method is well, for sure, often for sure. used. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing about drug discovery too. Is it still is very empirical. Oh, for sure. We like to compute a lot of things. A lot of things aren't known exactly how drugs interact with the body. Yeah, and a, lot, a lot of surprises. Most things don't yeah. have mechanisms, no mechanisms of yeah. action. Yeah, right? one yeah, thing sure. that um, I, I think that hasn't changed that much is that so many drugs actually come from nature still. That despite all the de novo ab initio methods and the the, temp, the attempts to find new drugs is often just patent breaking. It's building stuff on what's already tried and true. So a big breakthrough would be to be able to accelerate the discovery, the in silico discovery of new of new binding and patterns and patterns. And I think, I think to a certain extent, and you're right, Anne, like historically a lot of drugs have been from natural products and even things like, you know, the, the opioids are, are derivatives of those natural products. But something that has happened, I think, over the last 40 years um, has been really new drug modalities. And one has mm -hmm. been like the use of, of antibodies as drugs. You know, we never had that before in human history. It was just impossible to synthesize, right? Now we have to, that's why we have to inject them, et cetera. Um, but they have like Protax, yeah, these pro protein degraders. Yeah. Um, uh, another modality where, you know, the idea is to bring two proteins together so they get uh, a target about degradation. So I think, and maybe back to your point, um, Lab techniques getting advanced enough to investigate these things and know what's going on. Mm. Um, computational techniques being able to deal with these kind of problems. So, and that's you know, where having flexible software comes in. You want to deal with a protein degradation system. It's like docking, but it's not. Yeah. So you have to develop custom applications, and that helps people. I think experimentally, when they've got a new you know computational platform to at least organize and classify the data. So. There's a lot of exciting things that, happening, that, um, and I think a lot of that comes from people from different fields. You have biologists, they're talking to chemists, they start mm -hmm. saying, let's take a, an antibody and let's stick, stick a chemical warhead on it. You get these antibody drug conjugates, right? And then wh where do we stick it on? Well, we use some computation to figure out, you know, don't stick it there, it's not exposed, stick it there, it may be okay and not get oxidized. So all these things working together, I think have started to get to that point where it's we're starting to get to a process where we can develop drugs that differ from these natural products. I, I, I quite like the way you described that, right? Because um, the, the new modalities, they arise through that interplay between the biologists are saying, well, when we do this, this happens. And that's a good thing, so let's do more of that. And then having a platform that's flexible enough to work at all those different scales yeah. is actually really beneficial because you don't, right, I, I think about the work that you and, and, and our colleague Michael Drummond did on um, on the uh, protein degradation stuff, right? Like, you, you know, Mo is not a protein degradation software, but it's a software that can do things like understanding or beginning to beginning to tease out that signal as to what's related to it, such mm -hmm. that people who may have bought it for docking or may have bought it for dynamics can actually do something completely different. And that was so actually a nice example of we were hearing the buzz in the field. People were asking about, you know, do you have an application that'll take a molecule that's got two active, you know, two uh, binding uh, yeah. uh, 
probes yeah. and, and put the two proteins together. So we were, we were hearing sort of a buzz on the ground from different clients yeah. who were asking for a custom application to do it. So when we sort of put two and two together and discussed it, okay, we said, we'll make an application for all of them. So that's, it's, it's nice actually from a career perspective to be, you know, feel the pulse of the industry by going to talk to the people working in the industry. Yeah, for sure. Right. So that's that's and that's helped us, I think, advance as a company because we can listen to them and actually respond to them. Yeah. And on the computational side, you also have um, development in t- technology. For example, uh, Mopac, which uh, yeah. our software interfaces to, has developed as well to be able to be applied to large molecules, and that potentially opens up other areas. Well, that's actually a good a good example of one of the things that we did was we didn't reinvent the wheel where we didn't have to right mm. if we could like we mo doesn't run natively any quantum calculations we, we someone did at one point wrote some quantum code in, in svl for like gaussian type stuff but you know people want to use gaussian or mopac or games um but those packages are typically separate and hard to use so instead of coding them ourselves we instead instead we're interfaced to them so someone who wants to get a mo result from OPAC as a small part of a larger project. They don't have to go and run a separate calculation. They can initiate it right from from Mo. So the idea is, has always been to use different methods when you need, not promote one method. And, and just to be fair to our nice friends at Gaussian and Games, yeah. not hard to use, right? Just aimed perhaps at a, a, a more sophisticated technical it, audience. It, it, and and I think one of the things that, yes. that we do quite nicely yeah. is is lower the barriers. So yes, that, yes, so exactly. you democratize the ability yeah. to get people to That's be able right. to run That's DFT right. calculations from where they're currently building a de novo That's molecule. Right. Like I'm, I'm thinking in terms of a, a medicinal chemist who maybe yeah. does a little bit of modeling in the exactly. pocket. Occasionally one day he's got a series, yeah. he's got some functional group that's a bit funky right maybe he wants to turn a quantum calculation just that one time that one year turn the year to go and and figure some stuff out everyone opens that door once and then never does again do they be like nope bad idea don't do that the higher up in theory you have to go to try and explain something the more you realize you're on the wrong path what do you mean by six three g one star star plus plus (laughs) exactly uh anna how do you feel about the development of custom applications by your colleagues in support I think it's fantastic. I'm full of admiration, actually, for my people in support. Yeah. Our people in support, I say. Yeah. <laughs> um, Tell us more. Keep going. <laughs> uh, yes, don't, Dave. No, I mean, don't uh, back. support people are so brilliant. No, <laughs> really, actually. I, I uh, When I think about, you know, I do a lot of HR. So when I think about what uh, qualities are needed for somebody in R&D and I think about what qualities are needed for someone in support, I really, I mean, there's overlap because both both can, types of candidates need to be able to program. So, you know, support people in addition to just being great at customer facing, at being able to explain things really well and to teach and to enjoy interacting with customers on a daily basis. Um, they also have to be able to solve problems and and turn those into solutions that are programming solutions, and that's amazing. And I think it's wonderful that um, our support people do that. And in fact, the the code that becomes super popular, we we try to productize them, and it it informs and inspires what we do in R and D. So all good, fantastic. What a magical answer. She only had to look at her notes two or three times. So <laughs> the bill will be in the mail. Say nice things Dave. about well, Dave's crap code. When we first started, though, when the company first started, though, we did have a lot of um, self-doubt, right? And 
because we wanted to send custom code out to people, we were really hoping that the, the computational chemistry community would really adopt SVL and do all this programming on their own. Mm. But apparently that's not the case. So we had to start doing the programming for them. So when we first started sending out custom code, we were very, you know, we are we are a computer science company. We do you know professional level programming. So in the beginning, we tried to apply that same um, code review techniques to the things going out to clients, right? So in the we try and write good code going to clients. We just don't have time to check it all as much <laughs> as we'd like to. So over a while, we said, okay, it's okay to send certain things out. Even the Evan test, gone through all the same rigorous tests. So sometimes people ask us, you know, well, well, well this application go into Mo, some custom application. And sometimes we'll say, mm, not yet. And it's not because the application is not useful. It hasn't gone through that extra yeah. quality control yeah. and, and robustness, which, as I've mentioned before, usually is more 10 times the code of the actual usefulness of the application. Yeah. So there's certain things where we, we choose to, you know, not put that into official mode yet yeah, because yeah. it hasn't been completely fleshed out. Plus, to put it in official mode, it has to go through a lot more quality control and, and testing. Yeah, it's not just quality control. Um, I totally understand. Like support yeah. code, it's surgical. It's it's uh, satisfying a particular request for a particular client. It has to do this and this and this. When we put things into Mo itself, we're talking about applications that have a much more broad uh, use space. Mm -hmm. so, Those are very yeah. diplomatic. So you've never read any of my code, which is a bit more like throwing a grenade at the problem. Be like, fix the problem. Thanks very much. It's in bits. Um, the uh, the I was going to think of something. What was I thinking of? You were talking about the custom code. Oh, fudge it. That's another super senile, super senile scientist moment. I didn't get to quack. Can you said fudge it. I didn't get to yeah. quack. Well, the only, <laughs> I don't do think I I've ever heard you say something, Anna. That would have to be quacked. No, it do was you, Dave. You, you I wanted, you, I wanted to quack Dave for Dave. This is all going to get cut out, right? <laughs> Ah, maybe not. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, that's between me and Joanna. Yeah. The only two people who can actually tolerate listening to this, Tosh. <laughs> um, I want the funniest memory. Funniest memory over the last 30 years. The thing that you can think back on it always brings a smile to your face. And well, it has to be clean. Well... Oh, okay, geez, just remember, okay. I'm coming from the R&D side, so yeah. I, I need to put up a signpost that, that says nerd humor ahead, Yeah, you know. So in the beginning... Here we go, Joanna, buckle up. <laughs> nerd humor. Okay, you have, to, you have to promise to laugh, all right? No, no I'm not going to do that. Okay. Well, well in the this, old this days... This is Saturday Night Charades at the Lynn House. Exactly. Everyone's going to promise to laugh. Is it no one's something getting supper. about the orthogonality of... Gaussian polynomials or no, something. No, no, no. It's just, you know, developers have to get their jollies from somewhere, right? So, right. so for example, Danny would play these practical jokes on, on others. And so, but when developers play practical jokes, they, they do things like they rewire if into while, for oh, example, I remember, remember, the one, remember the one Danny played on Martin? So what yes. Danny did was... He made it so that every time Martin typed in his shell and entered a command, that there would be a longer and longer sleep. So it got to a certain point where, where Martin would type like F list and it would take like 10 minutes for the F list, right? And he'd get insane over the day. And then Danny had a secret command. He would go in and type it and would set it back to zero. So, so it's like, what are you talking about, Martin? Yes. And, <laughs> and it would be incremental, like in one, like 
0.3 seconds every time. So after half an hour later, Martin's like, it's slow again. What are you talking about, Martin? <laughs> and, and Danny did, did this to Peter. So <laughs> he had a file that if the file existed, the mouse would slowly drift. <laughs> it would slowly drift. So finally it was out of the focus. You know, the focus would be out of the window. And the, the sad thing is that Peter actually knew that it was something that Danny was doing. He couldn't figure out what it was. And he just tolerated it so you know that might have been construed as bullying and we won't mention any more about it that's a good idea I think that, well we i do think not condone such practices in the workplace <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> nor do we think this leads to the professionalism of our software platform <laughs> but, well i see what it's it, it's cold and dark in canada people have to entertain themselves somehow that's right? exactly right right what have we done check we've invented the programming language built a guru and i don't know let's Let's ah. with that guy's mouse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it works if it happens afterwards. Okay. Chris, you you got a longer time to think about that one, and I heard you groan when I said it had to be clean. It has to be, you know, radio friendly. Uh, the funny, I've, I've had so many funny moments. The fu funny haha or funny strange. Um, oh, whichever. Whichever tickles your fancy. I don't know. Actually, dealing with clients and dealing with the customers, not so much as dealing with travel and things like that, where, you know, where I've been strip searched at the border and different things like this. So, like, so that was, okay, so there's a funny story. Wait, but, have you been strip searched? Oh, yes. Yeah. So oh, what happened okay. was, um, it, this was my first ACS, so I've been at CCG six months, right? So we all show up at the airport together, you know, this is, you know, company thing. We're not, we're not used to traveling. Yeah, we all went to this we first all, ACS, all, all, all of us. All of us went to the wait, first. Wait, all of you, the whole ACS, company. ACS, San Francisco, all of us. And what year was this? 1998. 97 or, or 98 97 yeah, or 98 yeah. or something like that so so um so we all show up there at and and um no it was it was in boston it was definitely it was in it's just in boston i know because my wife was going down and she was actually taking a bus and going to meet me there um but i had all her clothes in my suitcase so right. as we're crossing the border they've got a sniffer dog right and i've been at a beastie boys concert the night before so the sniffer dog liked me so they took me aside, and of course they start going through my bags. You think same stuff. same taste in music, sort of thing. Or? Exactly. He just right. he just he just he could feel the beats, the vibes. He could feel the vibes. He's vibing right? with you. So they they take me aside and they start going through all my stuff, and of course they open up my suitcase, and I've got like ladies' high heel shoes. My wife's stuff. I was like, "Are these yours, sir?" You know. Yep. And then I've got a laptop which wasn't mine, so I didn't know how to open it. I was just bringing it down for the company. So it's all looking bad. It <laughs> didn't have a passport. I had only my my um, birth certificate. This is before 9-11, right? You didn't this, have a birth. What? Hang on a minute. Could I, had, you I, I had a birth certificate. didn't have a passport. Could you? You used to be able to cross the border with just yeah, a, yeah. Used yeah, with, with a driver's license. license, all that kind of stuff. No, a driver's license I knew, but passport, but, but, but birth certificate. Yeah, birth certificate. Yeah. I think it was a, a valid yeah. piece of. Well, I see it's it's questionable, right? Questionable. So so questionable. So, so so I have a strongly worded letter yeah. from my mum. Exactly. <laughs> so so can they got, I come into your country? So they got me. They got me all. Uh, uh, you know, the, the woman searching me. Then they got a guy from the RCMP. They got a guy from the the, the TSA or whatever. So it was, just show us the drugs, son. And I got kind of drugs on me. Kind right. of drugs on me. But if you Friendly allow me to open everything. the laptop, I'll make you some in silicone. <laughs> You so, didn't say that, right? No, I didn't say no, that. No, no, at this point, at this point, I, I, at this point, they've all gone through to the gates. They don't know where I am. Yeah, yeah. Right. So finally, finally, everyone's leaving, and I'm saying, "What's happening? What's happening?" And the woman goes, "We're going to strip search you." So the guys come, two guys come, and they take me into the room with the stainless steel toilet, and uh, they they say they give me this big, huge, long document, you know, like 15 pages or whatever, and I say, "Look, dudes, if I can sign this, and I strip down to my skivvies, and I got nothing, can I make my plane?" 
Okay, so I saw it, stripped down. I was in my underwear. I was about to turn around, pull it down, like spread. There's no, no need for that, sir. <laughs> so they, so they let me go. It's Canada. It's Canada, exactly. So, so they let me go, and then I finally, you know, go go back to the you know the concourse, go to the gate, and they're, they're like, "What happened to you, Chris?" And I'm like, "I don't want to talk about it." <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. So that was uh, so, and I I stayed. See the things that I do the for stage. CCG. Wow, the things that I endure. That feels like a very traumatic travel experience. It was a bit traumatic, I yeah. think. Wow. But Gosh. it makes for a great story. It does. It does. All right. And I guess with that, we're done for the day. Uh, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> There's nothing else. Thank you so Well, Listen, I just want to say, I know I just want to th- uh, share uh, my appreciation to Anna for coming on and talking to us this afternoon. I very much appreciate that. And I want to share my appreciation for letting me be a part of this ride for the last five or six years because it's been an absolute treat. And I do hope that my Canadian colleagues uh, next year uh, do take some time to think about the absolutely fabulous thing they did and continue to do because I think it's incredibly special. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, Dave. And did I say enough nice things to get a free dinner this evening? Oh, yeah, your dinner's always free. Yay! Oh, The drinks are free, though. Well, the drinks are always free at CCG. I mean, that was one of the the company policies from the beginning. Yes, that's true. Drinks are free. Mm -hmm. Drinks are free. We right? always knew how to show people a good time. Yeah, well, we know how to keep, we know how to, we know how to keep productivity high. Uh, it's by <laughs> messing with people's mice and uh, <laughs> setting in statements that make the shell slower to respond. Oh, yeah. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening to this, our most recent episode of Under the Surface. I think all that's left is for Chris, myself, and Anna to wish you all a happy holiday and a Merry Christmas. Christmas. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas. Ditto. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Under the Surface. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other platforms so you don't miss an upcoming episode. Enjoying our podcast? Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Have topics or speaker suggestions for future episodes? Send an email to podcast at chemcomp.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at chemcomp.com. Until then, keep exploring, keep learning, and keep loving the science. Signing off.